Hello, and welcome back to The China Insider, a podcast from the China Center at Hudson Institute. It's Tuesday, February 28th, and there are two really important topics to discuss today. The first is a report out of The Wall Street Journal over the weekend that the U.S. Department of Energy has concluded that the COVID-19 pandemic most likely came from a lab leak. We'll talk about what that new data point reveals and also the history that got us here. And then we'll finish up with a conversation about China's strategic calculus when it comes to Ukraine. Last week, the CCP released what it's calling a 12-point peace plan. That builds on a long history of engagement with Ukraine, going back to the fall of the Soviet Union, a treaty with Ukraine in 2013, and China's role as Russia's most important partner on the global stage. All right, so Miles, how are you? Very good, Wilson. So Miles, the first big topic to go through today is something that you have been following for a very, very long time. And for a while, we're leading an internal U.S. investigation on. But the topic that we want to start with is... Last weekend, uh, the Wall Street Journal reported that the U.S. Energy Department has concluded that the COVID-19 pandemic most likely arose from a lab leak. So obviously, this has been a debate within the United States public, within the United States government for a long time. What does this update mean? It means basically since uh, a, another confirmation of what we already knew. I mean, I think the DOE had its own um, independent assessment of the um, origin of the COVID by its top-notch scientist. I shall not name uh, uh, the institution under DOE, but this was done years ago in the spring of 2020. So I'm glad they came out you know, to, to voluntarily inform the Congress and the White House um, as an official assessment. As you mentioned a few minutes ago, I was uh, 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 working uh, uh, at the Secretary Pompeo's office, and he specifically instructed me to to do the investigation. This was like, you know, uh, the second week after the outbreak was identified in January 2020, uh, mostly through the open source materials. I, of course, consulted classified uh, intelligence sources, but uh, I canvassed open sources as, as much as I could. I came to the conclusion by late March and early April of 2020 that uh, overwhelming evidence had proved that a lab leak from the Wuhan Institute of Virology was very probable. And uh, so I, I submit my official report to the secretary uh, in April. Unfortunately, after that, because of the domestic hostility toward the Trump administration, we dropped that. Uh, and then we did not pick it up until later in the fall of 2020. The Wuhan Institute of Virology, as the source of this leak, has been openly admitted by some of the uh, uh, leaders in China uh, after three weeks of silence, Xi Jinping's first public speech in 2020 was about admitting the loopholes and shortcomings in China's biolapse safety procedures and biosafety lapses. His first order uh, uh, was to enact biosafety laws and saying that uh, biosecurity is also national security. And not on top of that, the director of the P4 lab at the Wuhan Institute of Virology uh, has been saying China's biosafety standard was awfully inadequate. And he's been saying this up until the outbreak when he was gagged. This is nothing really out of ordinary. If there were no such biosafety violations, no leak, uh, 
Xi Jinping would not have said that. Yeah, and you highlighted some of this in an op-ed with Secretary Pompeo, or at that time, former Secretary Pompeo, in early 2021. And you talked about how shortly after the outbreak, the People's Liberation Army dispatched a general, so a military official, to take over the Wuhan Institute of Virology right before General Secretary Xi Jinping made those remarks. Is that right? That's correct. But that's a different story. We did uh, release uh, the uh, facts finding. Uh, in January 2021, just days before the Democrats took over. Uh, and we say that uh, uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology did have uh, secret programs with Chinese uh, military bioweapon uh, uh, projects. Let me just, uh, just list some of the reasons why we think that uh, the, uh, the leak theory was not really that outlandish, right? First of all, the Wuhan Institute of Virology was the only institute in all of China that had the virus that caused COVID. And though that virus was enhanced uh, virologically because there was gain of function research over there. Number two, the WIV research was secretive, very secretive. It lacked biosafety supervision. So largely, basically, you know, it's not a, if not a rogue operation, but it's really, really sort of a, a, a unsupervised on its biosafety procedures. The P4 lab at the WIV was built with the French advanced technology. And it was, there was a bilateral agreement between the French and the, and the WIV that once it's built, the French would send at least 50 French researchers to that uh, uh, lab each year. And uh, the Chinese, after the completion of the, uh, of the lab, uh, completely reneged its, its promise and kicked the French out. No French scientist was allowed to go in to sort of uh, observe the procedures and, and uh, biosafety management. On top of that, the Wuhan Institute of Rheology, you have a P4 lab, you also have a P3 labs, and those labs have a very different safety procedures. And sometimes the personnel uh, are mixed. So uh, for example, the leading uh, um, COVID virus researcher at Wuhan Institute of Virology was Dr. Shi Zhenli. She is simultaneously the deputy director of P4 lab and also the director of P3 labs where he, she has collected a lot of uh, virus carrying uh, bats. And she years. had an interesting nickname, didn't she? Well, uh, Batwoman of China. Yeah, the Batwoman was her yeah. literal nickname. She has a, a lot of research projects, very dangerous projects, uh, mostly uh, on her own. So there's no adequate supervision. The outbreak was the catastrophe waiting to happen, if you understand the structural and the institutional uh, problem uh, of China's bio lab, bio research. Uh, even though the Wuhan lab was a national lab, but the central government really did not provide adequate funding. So the Wuhan lab became enterprising and innovative in a very tragic way uh, because they have to really rely on some of the local logistic support. Mm -hmm. One of the most important uh, local institutions was the Wuhan Inst uh, University nearby. As a result, this kind of symbiosis of a, a national lab with the local university became very, very troubling. Uh, for example, the entire Wuhan Institute of Virology uh, uh, was led by a 37-year-old woman. She is young and inexperienced, and her name is Wang Yanyi. And uh, she happened to be 
the wife, very young wife of the vice president of Wuhan University. So uh, another Wuhan University also has a P3 lab, also mixed with the uh, uh, Waves P4 lab. So there's a lot of procedural problems there. Another thing is there is a prevailing practice of China's bio labs of selling lab animals to local markets or as yeah. pets. And this was one of the first allegations against uh, Wuhan's uh, Institute of Virology after the outbreak of the virus in Wuhan uh, was made known to the public. Yeah, there were posts online in Chinese blogs about That's that right. very issue. And all those allegations, all the institutional problems posed to Wuhan uh, uh, Institute of Virology remain unanswered. So the, the, the institute acts as if it's guilty of something. Yeah, where there's smoke, there's fire. The circumstantial evidence uh, pointing to the Wuhan Institute of Virology as the likely source of a leak is overwhelming. So I think that the public, the American public at least, is aware of some of what you just talked about, but not all of it. The, the personnel that you talked about, the circumstantial evidence that you talked about. There was one other piece of evidence that you flagged uh, that I thought was very interesting about what made it suspicious that the Wuhan Institute of Virology may have been or even likely was the source of this virus. And that was cell phone activity around the lab. So in late 2019, activity went dark, right? What was the what was the background around that? And how did that raise your suspicions in early 2020? I think there was a um, American company that monitored uh, cell phone activities including uh, some facilities in China. This, uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology was one of them. And I think they first monitor the traffic around the time of the military games in September. And then uh, in October, there was a period of time where all the cell phone activities were, uh, was gone. So this raised the suspicion that somehow some kind of dangerous, uh, unusual uh, event uh, had taken place uh, in the important facilities over there. Again, October 2019. So the State Department at the end of the administration released a fact sheet saying that it had reason to believe that there were people with who were ill with a disease like COVID in autumn 2019. You saw the change in activity around the lab. And now the Department of Energy has joined what is a, a growing consensus in American public opinion and at a certain point, even within the American government, about a shift in opinion, it's joined the FBI in saying that the virus likely spread via a lab leak. Four other agencies are still on the side of natural transmission. Two are undecided. And one of the problems is a couple of weeks ago, the WHO said that it cannot continue its investigations because it's not getting enough cooperation from the Chinese government. So do you think we'll ever know where this virus actually came from? I think there's only one way to know it for sure. That is, the Chinese government changes policy of stonewalling. Chinese government has always acted as if it's guilty. In the first instance, uh, the Chinese National uh, Health Commission, the highest authority of public health uh, uh, in China, ordered the destruction of the original virus samples of the uh, initial patients. This was issued in the first week of January 2020. They also gagged the scientists. They also gagged the journalists. And they also gagged the doctors. So people who were in the know were not allowed to communicate with the international community. Mm -hmm. For WHO, 
to say, you know what, simply because the Chinese government doesn't cooperate, therefore we're going to give up. It's highly irresponsible. The only right way to do it is to push harder, put a lot of pressure on China uh, to open it up, because this is not just about the bureaucratic problem. This is about the health of the entire world. Yeah, to your point, preventing a pandemic from happening again, perhaps from similar sources. So our next topic for the day is about China and Ukraine. So last week, the CCP released a 12-point, what it's calling a peace plan, around the anniversary, the first anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. People were talking about what that means, but I want to start off this conversation with some points about where Ukraine fits into China's broader strategic calculus. So in 2013, China and Ukraine signed a security agreement, uh, and this was with one of Zelensky's predecessors, Yanukovych, but also General Secretary Xi Jinping. So, Miles, let's work our way from 2013 to the document that came out last week. What was the nature of that agreement, and how does China think about uh, Ukraine in its broader strategic calculus? So this was a security uh, uh, agreement between Viktor Yanukovych and uh, General Secretary Xi Jinping, who had uh, just came into supreme power uh, as the General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. So this was done in December 2013, at the height of the Maidan Revolution, when Yanukovych, uh, who was known as the sort of puppet of, of Vladimir Putin, was under a lot of pressure not to sign a deal with Moscow, instead of going over to the EU. Yanukovych feel he was in a rock and hard place. So he tried to seek the third way. That is, he flew to Beijing and to play the China card. Uh, this is the disaster. So what that agreement was, was a, a nuclear security guarantee. In American parlance, it's called a nuclear umbrella. right? So the deal was, if Ukraine would con- come under attack, a nuclear threat by a third country, China would guarantee uh, nuclear Ukraine's nuclear security in order to provide uh, Ukraine a uh, uh, nuclear umbrella. This enraged Vladimir Putin uh, to no end <laughs> because after the collapse of the Soviet Union, of the 12, 13 Soviet republics, there were three of them that were particularly uh, uh, crucial for Russia. One is Belarus. Another one is Kazakhstan. And the third one, and most importantly, is Ukraine. The reason Ukraine is important because Ukraine was the uh, the primary uh, Soviet republic that produced enormous, almost majority of strategic assets for uh, for the Soviet Union. For example, almost all the space-related weapons were made in, in Ukraine. And most of the surface warships and substantial number of submarines for the Soviet Union was made were made in Ukraine. And Ukraine also was the Soviet Union's most important missile-making republic. So when Ukraine became independent in early 1990, and it gave up its nuclear weapons with, with uh, to, to Russia, and in exchange for the Budapest uh, memorandum that superficially guaranteed Ukraine's uh, uh, security, uh, but Ukraine was left with enormous amount of Russian design and Russian weapons, with which the Ukrainian government, this is before uh, Zelensky, had become uh, an out-of-control um, arms dealer in the world, and its primary customer was China. China saw the opportunity uh, and uh, developed a strategic partnership with a very corrupt Ukrainian government for almost 20 years. 
Virtually every single major modern warfare platform in China, except in nuclear, has received crucial assistance from Ukraine. Including China's first aircraft carrier, right? Including China's first aircraft carrier, including the largest amphibious air cushion landing craft. It's called a European Bison. Ukraine made, makes the, the largest one in the world, with which China has used uh, to intimidate its laborers in South China in particular. China's modernization of its heavy bombers was made possible because Ukrainian uh, support of the heavy uh, bomber engines, its turbofan engines. Ukraine's missile technology is crucial in China's uh, sort of a leapfrog uh, advance uh, in Chinese missile uh, technology and capabilities. And more importantly, over the span of about 20-some years, China had employed more than 2,000 Russian-trained Ukrainian weapons experts. You go to China's weapons plant, either in Chengdu, in Shenyang, or Nanjing, or Shanghai, you see Ukrainian weapons experts. So this is a country. Now, Ukrainian, in much of the post-Cold War era, was ranked about number four or number five largest weapons uh, uh, export country. So China basically uh, was able to make his uh, first wave of military modernization by using Ukraine as a conduit to gain advanced Russian weaponry, often at a fraction of the price China would have to pay Russia. So this was one of the reasons Vladimir Putin was constantly uh, in conflict with China uh, and with Ukraine. Yeah, so that brings us very well to the present day. So China has this security relationship with Ukraine. It also has a relationship with Russia. A week before Vladimir Putin invades, has his full-scale invasion in 2022, China and Russia have a joint statement pledging a no-limits partnership. So walk us through what has China's calculus been since February of 2022 until the time it released its 12-point plan last week? So China's relationship with Russia and Ukraine is very uh, peculiar because even though China wants to use Ukraine to steal Russian technology and military uh, uh, know-hows. But Russia strategically uh, is much more important than Ukraine because Russia is a global player. Ukraine was a regional player. Whenever China needs a global alliance of some sort, and it always became very subservient to Russia's demands. I'll give you a couple of examples. In 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea, China at that time owed the Ukrainian government in Kyiv millions of dollars for the uh, uh, delivery by Ukraine to China, uh, the European bison, the air cushion amphibious landing craft. Uh, but Russia said, you know what, since those landing crafts were made in Crimea, now belong to Russia, so China is not allowed to pay Kyiv uh, the payment for that problem. Instead, you should pay the manufacturer of that particular weapon uh, in Crimea. China had no choice but uh, um, align with Russia and pay the money to the Russian control uh, manufacturer of that landing craft. And basically, this is the insult to Ukraine. So what I'm trying to say here is uh, Ukrainians should learn the lesson from its past and should completely jettison the China fantasy. Uh, so which brings me to the 12 points. 
Yeah, so this is a 12-point plan for peace that the CCP released last week on the one-year anniversary. The entire 12-point peace proposal is sheer nonsense. It doesn't say anything. It reflects China's opportunism and its strategic alliance to Russia at the great expense of Ukrainian national interests. First of all, the first one, it says, you know, respecting the sovereignty of all countries. China is the most aggressive country, has never respected most of its neighbors in its own neighborhood. Tell this to Taiwan, to Japan, to South Korea, to Vietnam, to India, Philippines. And they said, uh, uh, you know, abandon Cold War mentality. Now, even though this sounds pretty cliche, but what this means is that uh, China is now blaming NATO uh, uh, for Russia's aggression because this is precisely what Vladimir Putin has been saying, that it is a NATO expansion to Eastern Europe and post potentially to, uh, to Ukraine that would justify Russia's aggression. So this is uh, China and Russia saying the same thing. And also, uh, you said, cease hostility. That means Russia is now facing the very likelihood of a total defeat uh, in Ukraine. And when, when China jumps in and says, well, stop fighting, that means it saves Russia from total defeat. But most importantly, is actually very interesting uh, um, about point 12. He said, promoting post-conflict reconstruction. What this means is that uh, China wants to take this opportunity to provide Ukraine uh, vital uh, financial assistance to play the leading role uh, in Ukraine's post-war reconstruction. Uh, the whole purpose is to squeeze out the influence of EU, United States, and NATO. Yeah, the last line of the 12-point plan. So final sentence in point 12, China stands ready to provide assistance and play a constructive role in this endeavor. Uh, but as you've highlighted, uh, they gave a guarantee of security in 2013. That has not worked out for Ukraine. And let me just point out, this proposal is completely devoid of any any uh, moral quality. It shows China cannot be trusted as the leader of the world because it fails to condemn the culprit of this war in Ukraine, that's Russia. It also avoids the obvious result, that is, for Russia to pull up Ukraine and return the territory it had occupied. That's the most obvious solution, which is basically the solution of the United States and NATO and its allies uh, have been saying for months now. So China doesn't have the guts. And this proposal is going to basically make Russia the winner and at least to save Russia from total defeat. And also um, uh, it hinted that uh, it will allow Russia to keep Crimea which is something that's very, very um, troubling uh, to me. Yeah, and if anyone wants to see China's stance on the war, last week there was a vote at the UN around the anniversary uh, to condemn Putin's invasion of Ukraine. A large majority of countries, 141 of them, voted in favor of that resolution condemning. 32 abstained. One of those was China, as they did last year. That's all the time that we have for this week, Miles. Uh, these are two big topics that we're obviously going to continue to follow on China Insider, both the COVID lab leak, China's culpability going forward, and also the Ukraine war and China's strategic calculus. Thanks so much for a great conversation. Thank you, Wilson. Looking forward to for next week. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The China Insider, a podcast from the China Center at Hudson Institute. We appreciate Hudson for making this podcast possible. Follow Miles and all of the additional great work we do at Hudson.org. Please remember to rate and review this podcast, and we'll see you next time on The China Insider. <laughs>